For the News and Observer, I'm Dawn Vaughn, your host for this episode of Under the Dome for the week of Monday, April 24th, 2023. I'm here today with North Carolina House member John Hardister. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Representative Furnister is a Republican from Guilford County. He's been in the House for six terms and chairs the Education Universities Committee and Education Appropriations Committee. He's also the House Majority Whip, which means he knows if they have the votes, um, which they have a, um, at least one more now than expected a few weeks ago. So we can talk about that in a minute. Uh, and then, of course, at the end, we'll talk about the headliner. I'll ask Hardister what he likes from the legislative cafeteria. Um, and first starts also running in the Republican primary for labor commissioner. So we'll get to that, too. Uh, let's start talking about your role as whip. How did you become the whip? I ran and got elected. Okay. <laughs> so it's a, an election within our caucus. Um, it was after the 2016 election. So at that time, I was coming into my third term in the House. And it was basically just a caucus election. Uh, there were three of us running at the time as myself. John Bradford and Pat Hurley. And um, it was actually kind of tough. It was funny because when you're running for the House, you know, you have to get you know thousands and thousands of votes to win. But within a caucus, you just have to get majority of your caucus. So that was, we had 70 some members at the time. So I think I'd get, you know, 30 some votes um, was a majority. And I had to call each member individually and try to convince them to support me. And I remember I got a, a spreadsheet and I'm kind of old-fashioned, so I'd mark up on it. If they were voting for me, I'd highlight their name in green. If they said no, I'm supporting somebody else, I'd highlight it in red. And then if I wasn't sure, some won't commit, I'd highlight it yellow. So it was a fairly uh, tedious process. But um, fortunately, I won, and um, it's been uh, an interesting journey. How has it been? Is it kind of once you're whipped, then you maintain that support, or are you still whipping the votes for yourself? You know, <laughs> Yeah, so... It's not automatic that you uh, retain the support. I, I've not been challenged uh, within the caucus since then. And we, we've kind of had continuity all around, like Speaker Moore, um, Leader Bell. You know, they've, they've held those positions for quite a while. Um, we work pretty well together as a caucus. Is the whip, what we do is we count votes. But in addition to that, we, we track attendance. Like members are going to be out. We have to know who's going to be missing in a committee or on the House floor. There's somebody... They're near the front because when I'm like milling about waiting for more to gaggle, it says attendance matters under their desk. I don't know if it's bells or halls. Do you know whose desk is that? We had a few members that had those out on their desk. I de- Maybe bell. I'm not sure. But that, that dates back, I think, to the Tillis days. We, we had several caucus. I think I had one, too. I think when I moved my desk, I, I lost it. I wonder if it was there because until a few weeks ago, um, looking at those few Democrats that would vote um with you all and then it being just like one short of a supermajority that only counts if everybody's there yeah well yeah i mean even now we have a supermajority right on the number so you know, if we're missing a member that could be the vote makes a difference so are you the one that says you know make sure everybody's here do you how does that track what if i mean do you find out just that day if someone's not going to be there and how do you communicate okay we have this many people here today you know we should vote on this or we shouldn't or Usually we know schedules ahead of time and members are pretty proactive about letting me know if they're going to be out. And sometimes things come up as emergency, you know, but members typically let me know when they're going to be absent. You know, if somebody has a medical procedure or a wedding to attend or some personal uh, event, um, but sometimes people have emergencies where we have to leave. So we just track the 
tenants as best we can. So how is that different now that um, I'm sure listeners have probably heard by now that Representative Trisha Cotham, a Mecklenburg County former Democrat, has now moved to the Republican caucus. She It wasn't a surprise in the sense that um, a lot of her policy positions were already on the other side of the aisle, and she's had been one of a couple um, swing votes, and now yeah. hers just went completely to the other side with her announcement. So right. did you have, how much of a heads up did you have that it was coming? I heard it was really just a matter of days for as far as rank and file. Sure, yeah. So it was not a surprise because Reverend Cotham, I think, has moved more towards the center, uh, center right, if you will. And she had been voting with the majority. So from, I think, uh, just a standpoint of votes, it hasn't, I mean, it, it's been pretty recent, you know, so we'll, we'll see how it plays out. But uh, she'd been voting with us and, you know, we did override a, a, a veto before she switched parties. So, um, I mean, so far there hasn't been a material difference, but moving forward, I'm sure there will be. And, um, you know, our caucus, we, we work well together, but at the same time, there are different uh, opinions within the caucus on a variety of issues. So it's not like we're all constantly in lockstep. You know, we have to have those conversations in caucus and see, you know, what's the will of the majority members within the caucus. Um, but as far as heads up, I, um, I got a call the day before the announcement and was made aware that it was going to happen. So I was not involved in any of those conversations. I've heard anecdotally that um, it could happen, but it, I was not really surprised just because, you know, Representative Cotham, I think, has become a little bit more conservative in her views. Um, but I, I basically found out about a day ahead of time. So being whip for the Republican caucus, though, does that include trying to get the votes from Democrats to vote with you on? On occasion. Yeah, on occasion it does. Um, and, and, you know, by the way, we want things to be bipartisan. It's not like we want to just come and run everything through with Republican votes. We'd like to have, um, you know, bipartisan support as much as we can. Um, so, yeah, we absolutely talk to Democrats. Um, so do you think that she, her role, I guess, has she come to caucus meetings um, since she? Well, yeah, since yeah. switching. Yeah, she has. Yeah. So how is it, would you describe the way it's changed now? Is she one of the 72 and and that's a vote, you know, to count the same way as someone, you know, at the other end of the caucus, like Kidwell or or somebody else? Or is it? Because of knowing where she's been previously on policy, then she is somebody to check on to make sure, you know, she supports something. Yeah, well, we have a diverse caucus as it is, you know, even before Resident Cotham had switched parties. Um, you know, so we're, we're kind of having to do that anyway. But, um, I mean, as evidenced by recent votes, I think she has moved more to the right. And, you know, you could argue maybe she'll move a little more to the right now. But look, we, we always say vote your, your conscience first, then your constituent second, your caucus third. We've always said that. And I suspect that'll that'll continue. And is that I know you guys aren't supposed to talk about like exactly what happens in caucus, but how how does it work when um, the caucus decides this is something that we want to run, we want everybody's vote versus, you know, we'd prefer that you do this if you're you know, if you're not, if you, you know, if you have a different opinion, if your district is different, you're saying like vote your constituents, right. then, then that's fine. Or do you know going into it what that looks like, and does it change on the floor? I mean, the sports betting last year, you know, that was, I guess, one example of you know not everyone um, being being in step. But how does right. how does that work when you get to the when you get to a floor vote? How do you know then if you have the votes? 
Yeah, so we generally don't bring bills to the floor unless you feel pretty confident that we, we have the votes for those bills to pass. Um, and as you mentioned, I can't get too deep into uh, machinations of the caucus, but typically uh, if there's issue that you know has some high level of importance or um, if there's some controversy tied to it, we'll talk about it in caucus and we'll move forward if a majority of the caucus wants to. And it could be just 50% plus one of the caucus members. Um, you know, and ultimately speaker control is what goes to the floor, but speaker will, you know, yield quite a bit to the, the caucus and sports betting. That one, I can't recall exactly what the breakdown was, but it was pretty, pretty close, um, within the caucus. But then when we went to the floor, we had a handful of members were absent and it was actually, I think some Democrats that switched their votes to the floor. Um, yeah. And he saw it again this time it passed with, uh, this session with more of a cushion there. But what kind of encouraged me about it was that the, the factions are breaking down on both sides of the aisle. You know, there's Republicans vehemently against it, Democrats vehemently against it, and then Democrats for Republicans are for it. So it was just one of those issues where it wasn't breaking down, you know, left or right. Um, but generally speaking, we try to make sure we had the votes when we come to the floor, but it doesn't always happen that way. Doesn't seem like within the caucus there was really too much debate over the budget. Um, how do you think that will come with with your area of the budget once the Senate's come, you know, the meeting in the middle? Um, do you think because of the supermajority that makes it harder, easier, you know, as far as negotiating with the, with the conference budget will look? You could argue that it could make it easier, you know, if if the majority party uh, is in agreement. But again, I mean, you've seen issues of the House and Senate don't always agree in certain things. Um, I'm optimistic though that we'll have a budget that. With the House and Senate leadership will be pretty close on it. And I think um, we'll have a bipartisan vote as well. And we had a bipartisan vote when the budget passed the House. Um, but, you know, my focus has been a little bit more on the education side. And I feel like we have a good plan for the university system, community college system. Um, teacher pay is really important. And we're looking at what's going to be probably, at least in the House version, if you include the local supplements, about a 10% increase over two years for teachers, which is needed. And not just that, but the university level community colleges are having a lot of trouble with turnover because um, some of their you know, faculty and staff are leaving for the private sector. So um, I feel pretty encouraged by that. I think the Senate shares a lot of those priorities. I think at the end of the day, we'll have a, um, a budget that will be supported by members of both parties. What do you think about that? Um, there had been some attention, um, positive and negative, about that new school at UNC and that coming through with the final. So what do you what are your thoughts on that? Is the chair it's the school of civic life? Civic, yeah, civic life. Let life and leadership, and that and that being formed, and the the criticism there that this is more vehicle for, uh, re, you know, Republican supporters versus the use from academia. Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of those concerns are not that I don't take people's concerns seriously, but I think a lot of those um, statements are more hyperbolic. That this concept had been around for a while. Uh, the current board of trustee members effectuated it. it. It's certainly not to promote conservatism. It's to promote freedom of speech on campus and the um, the idea that the ethos on campus should embrace diversity of thought and you know not shut down students uh, who may share a different viewpoint from maybe a faculty member, staff member, or just a student body themselves. Um, there's been some studies done, and I've heard from quite a few students. Uh, and even faculty and staff who feel like, you know, some people, and yeah, it's more on the conservative side uh, because 
universities tend to be a little bit more left, which is, you know, that's okay as long as, number one, there's no indoctrination taking place. Like the faculty and staff are not trying to push their views onto the students. Number two, there's an environment where you can share those ideas and debate them openly. And then I think a, a lot of the school's focus is going to be you know, on that side of it, freedom of speech and, you know, civics and not canceling people when you don't agree with them. Um, but I think just understanding the um, the branches of government and, um, you know, how to function and as a citizen and, you know, be productive within the political realm without trying to shut down the other side, the debate's actually a good thing. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about education. We're going to talk about labor and then we'll talk about food and our headliners. We'll be right back. You're listening to Under the Dome. I'm News and Observer Capitol Bureau Chief Don Bond here with Representative John Hardister, a Guilford County Republican. Uh, before the break, we were talking about the changes in the House Republican Caucus. We were also talking about education. And I wanted to make uh, ask you about two things before we move on to some other things about education. Uh, you, on the House side anyway, you and Representative Zach Hawkins had started the HBCU's caucus. I wanted to see how that's going and then also ask you about the Civil Rights History Education Bill that you sponsored. Yeah. Well, I'm excited about the HBCU caucus because that's the first in the nation, for the, the, the first General Assembly in the country to do that. It's been good so far. We've had some great conversations with leadership from the HBCUs. We're also starting to highlight some of the things we're doing currently. Um, you know, the capital, um, the, the state capital infrastructure fund has provided quite a bit of funding for capital projects within the HBCU realm and um, there's a variety of programs going on that are doing extremely well. Um, in fact, the other day I heard on the radio, I was listening to national radio. I think it was, um, it might, I think it was CNBC. And uh, they had the CEO of Wolfspeed on who actually mentioned A&T University and some of the research they're doing there. So we're starting to highlight all that, you know, illuminate all that. Um, so that's been, it's been great so far. And then uh, the other question was about the, the uh, civil. The uh, civil rights bill. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, so the idea came from uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Matt Daniels from Virginia. He's a professor. And I think the genesis, more or less, is that, one, Martin Luther King Jr. had phenomenal ideas that, that, are, that are taught within U.S. history, but why not take those and set them aside and amplify them? And the reason being is that what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about was you know, diversity and, and embracing different races and cultures and then treating all ourselves equally, each other equally, and uh, also through nonviolence. And, you know, lately we've unfortunately seen some violence. There have been some riots and, you know, Chicago recently has been documented. That's not the way, you know, to affect social change. If you want to change things, if you want to promote diversity in whatever form, you got to do that, I think, through peace and love and respect. And that's what uh, MLK was about. So, uh, they've they've actually passed this type of legislation in some other states, I think, including in South Carolina. They've had strong bipartisan support. So we're hoping we can do the same here. You think that's is that kind of in response to the anti-CRT legislation in the past to, um, you know, a lot of the criticism and and, you know, almost all of the African-American members of the House are, are Democrats, all except for one, um, that was talking about like watering down, whitewashing history, not including all of it. So do you th see this as a way to put some of that back or do you think it it does include everything you didn't mention Malcolm X in there so I mean as far as um you know how how it's taught and and what's being taught we need to learn all of it 
I mean, including, you know, Malcolm X. I mean, I, re- I recall learning about Malcolm X when I was in school and took U.S. history. And you learn all that. But I, I think Martin Luther King Jr. was really on to something that we need to hang a lantern on. And I think it would benefit our society. So that's why we're, we're bifurcating that out, hopefully. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of concerns um, in, in our country and across the state about, about CRT and what that promotes. And, you know, people have freedom of speech to promote what they want. Um, this, in a sense, could be answered to that, that we can be diverse, we, we can be inclusive, but we can do that by respecting each other, by, in a sense, maybe being colorblind, that we're all human beings, you know, we all bleed red. And that's kind of what I was taught, what I believed when I was growing up. I feel like we're almost moving away from that now. Um, this hopefully could, you know, have a positive impact on our state. Um, but then also the nonviolence is a uh, big part of it as well. I mean, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a letter from jail that, you know, has become a, a an amazing historical document in the United States. Do you think they should, the, um, I've written a lot of stories about this, I don't know if I've asked you before, but the um, the long-stalled project on the state capitol grounds for the African-American um, History Monument that would be on the one corner, and it was in, the, it was in that 2019 budget that never happened, and I asked Berger about it this uh, this session, and he said he supports it. He doesn't know if it's going to be in the Senate budget. It wasn't in the House budget. Would you support that in the, the if it shows up in the conference budget? Don, say it again, the historical. It would be a monument to, um, it'd be, it's through cultural resources. It's this two and a half million um, that's been in and out of, you know, the budget and various bills. It would be built on the Capitol grounds. And it's, all it needs is the money, according to the. Um, Department of Cultural Resources. And what exactly, what what would it be that was built on the Capitol grounds? So they, the different, um, I'm going to get it wrong if I if I try to remember the name of the different historical commissions that were involved, where it, the design would still be in the, in the works, um, but it would just be something that it's African-American history in North Carolina. It would be a monument to that. I do know what you're talking about. Yes, um, I would support that. If um, we can get funding in the budget, that would be great. I'm glad you brought that up. I, maybe now we'll go back and take a look at that. Okay. And Freedom Park, um, if listeners have, have, have probably have heard us mention before, well, it's supposed to open this summer on the block between the Executive Mansion and the Legislative Building, and that's um, a different project that did get funding in a, in a previous budget. Um, I want to talk one more thing quickly about this. You said uh, you filed a bill about um, right to work. So yep. what's that? Right to work. So we are a right to work state currently. Uh, basically what that means is if there's a union, and you go to seek employment with an employer that's affiliated with the union, you don't have to pay dues to the union or join. It's a choice. Now, in some states are not right to work. If there's a union affiliated with the employer, you have to pay dues or join. Um, most, most cases, you don't technically have to join, but you have to pay dues. You have no choice if you want to work there. Um, we are a right to work state. Now, this doesn't pertain to our uh, public sector organizations. They can't collectively bargain. That's currently law. Um, also, uh, railroad and, and airline unions, they're, they're not covered by this because it's federal law pertaining to them. But for other private sector businesses and organizations, currently you have a right to choose whether or not you want to join. This simply would take that and put it into the Constitution, which would solidify it, would make it harder to repeal. Uh, but this, this would be submitted to the voters. So it would have to have 72 votes in the House and 30 votes in the Senate to clear a General Assembly, in which case it would be submitted to the voters by referendum in 2024. So North Carolina is the second lowest union membership rate in the country and has for a while after South Carolina. So what do you think it would do that's kind of not already in place just by default, I guess, since there aren't that many people in? 
I think you never know what's going to happen with union membership. But Gary Castile, the, the former president of United Auto Workers, was quoted as saying basically that right to work's not really bad because it requires unions to do a good job to encourage people to join. I'll give you an example. So in Greensboro, there are several hundred firefighters in the Greensboro Fire Department, and I've got a great relationship with them. They function as a union. But their membership, which is totally voluntary, is around 96%. Just because they do good work. So, you know, as companies come and grow in North Carolina, I have no problem with people joining a union as long as they have a choice. Uh, we've been talking a lot. I'm going to talk more about labor with you running for labor commissioner. We've got, what, a year a year out on that. Um, all right. Let me switch to um, what do you like to eat in the we're recording this in the legislative office building? So it includes the snack bar cafeteria here. What's your what's your go to order? It's boring. Or exciting, I don't know. So I, I eat a salad every time. I get I get salad. I put grilled chicken on it, some olive oil, um, whole wheat toast. I know it's healthy, so it's kind of boring, but that's what that's my go-to. I don't think is there a salad bar in the snack bar or only in the legislative building. I go so I go to the legislative building. That's where I go. They, they have a pretty robust snack bar there. I got to give them a shout out. They really do, and get some good stuff there. All right, first first plug for salad. I had Senator Grafstein on here, and she said the green beans because she's vegetarian. That was that's her go-to. Um, all right, so let's move on to our picks for headliner of the week. Um, mine is about something I missed this week because I was uh, busy doing something else and didn't check out the Halifax Mall between the legislative office building and the legislative building where the legislative llama made an appearance. So that is my headliner I have FOMO about that. It usually comes with the, I want to say the um, Constitution or the Convention of Convention States, of States usually brings it. And they were here a few months ago and the llama was not, um, but uh, they came back and the, and the llama did too. So that's my, uh, while we're sitting in here talking, there's a, a framed uh, image on the wall of you with, I believe, a hawk or a It's a hawk, one. yeah. So on Halifax Mall, so we get a fair amount of... Um, um, wildlife and domesticated animals. <laughs> to you never know what you're going to see. Um, all right. Who or what is your headliner? So that's easy. Um, today I had the opportunity, the privilege to meet Tori Holt, uh, who's from Gibsonville, which is in the district that I represent. Uh, he played uh, football for NC State University, went on to have a great career in the NFL. Um, had the chance to meet him today, and that was awesome. So that's my my headliner. And to bring that back to the budget and what we were talking about, um, Holt of Holt Brothers Construction um, are the ones doing the work on Freedom Park that'll open in a couple of months. There you go. So, uh, more reasons to come over to, to this side of downtown. Um, all right, that's all the time we have. I want to thank Representative Minister for being on the podcast. I'm John Vaughn for the News and Observer. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider and sign up for our weekly political newsletter, also called Under the Dome, at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.